Welcome to the Purple Political Breakdown. You know, national security is a very complex situation. There are things that we can continuously do to improve it, of course, whether it's, you know, improving the efficiency process to allow better innovation and reallocating budget resources, or it's to improve our cyber warfare, cybersecurity programs, um, continuously advancing it, making it the best in the world. Honestly, we probably should because if i'm a country that doesn't have the military power that america has one thing that i will do is invest a lot of money in my cybersecurity abilities do you want a great website like this this is my podcast website where i direct the audience to come to watch the content listen to the content read the blogs and much much more if you want to have your own customizable podcast website then join my affiliate link in my description to sign up for something called PodPage and they can help you customize an easy podcast website for your personal podcast. Sign up to get a discount now. Again, use the link in my description to join PodPage now. Are you enjoying today's podcast episode? I really hope you do. And I really hope you enjoy the fact that I have an amazing guest talking with me and having this great discussion. If you, as an individual, personally have your own podcast and maybe you want to have great guests on your podcast as well, well, I got a deal for you. In my description, there is a link to something called Podmatch. Make sure to join that link through my affiliate link so you can sign up to get matched up with other podcast hosts and podcast guests so you make sure you are never missing an episode without a productive guest to have an amazing conversation with. Podmatch is similar to any other kind of matching site for the most part. And it's super easy you, just $6 a month and you can have a guest for each and every podcast episode that is tailored to your specific topic. So again, join the link in my description and join Podmatch now. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is your boy, Riddell Lewis. Back at it again. We are here with the Purple Political Breakdown. As I said, um, we didn't have an episode live on Monday for Labor Day because we wanted to relax a little bit. But now we're back with some great discussions, great conversations, see if we can come up with some solutions as well. Now, today we're going to be talking about you know the government. We're going to talk about uh, spending and military spending a little bit to it, see the kind of nuances behind that i think it'll be a very interesting conversation of course and in order to have that conversation i have a guest for us today in gene moran did i pronounce that correctly absolutely I excellent so uh yeah go ahead introduce yourself well thanks for having me riddell great to be here with your audience i am a uh, lobbyist and consultant focused on defense issues and national security at the federal level and uh, a byproduct of that requires me to sort of keep up with what's going on in politics uh, at, a, at a macro level uh, and foreign relations uh, where our place in the world uh, is, how, how, how are we doing, how are we prepared to uh, sustain that. And I, I spend a lot of time helping defense companies uh, try to help the government get the best outcomes and solutions that it needs in order to maintain a state of readiness. So I, uh, I sometimes say that I work at the nexus of politics and national security. All right. Very interesting. Um, so before we kind of dive into the nitty gritty of the stuff you're referring to and national security and, you know, potential worries you may have or, potential misconceptions that people have in terms of it uh i'm gonna obviously start off with a what you need to know what is going on if you're not caught up with current events these are a few things that you may be interested to know in terms of the political landscape of course and i would love to hear your opinion about it as well gene a few things that are going on uh, mitch mcconnell freezes again on the podium raising questions on the validity uh, validity of uh some politicians and their ability to kind of function as an everyday uh, individual. So 
there's uh, been a question that kind of popped up, and I guess we could talk about that a little bit later on should these politicians be vetted in terms of like having a con cognitive test um, at certain points to kind of make sure that they're a functional part functioning member of uh, society, especially being a governmental leader. So that's a definitely interesting question, of course. Um, we also have a Texas impeachment of attorney general Ken Paxton for potential corruption charges that is going on. Uh, Proud Boys have been censored, uh, sentenced. Some leaders or former leaders of the Proud Boys have been sentenced in relation to the January 6th riot, insurrection, whatever you want to phrase it. Uh, 61 people were indicted in Georgia on racketeering charges. Uh, apparently, there is, uh, I think there was firefighters and police force were doing like a routine training and a bunch of people just showed up and just caused a huge ruckus and it was not good. And the last thing is that apparently we have been making process or making waves on synthetic embryos. Uh, it seems like these embryos have been created without the use of uh, sperm and uh, fertilized eggs and it's supposed to sim uh, simulate around, I think, the first eight weeks of an embryo. And it gives a interesting insight on the uh, growth process. So that's a very interesting thing as well. So a lot of things going on. Uh, do you have uh, any opinions about recent news or do you have any news on your uh, yourself? Yeah. So, you know, I try to help companies look beyond the headlines sometimes. And, uh, you know, everything you've mentioned is, uh, is, is certainly interesting and, and relevant. Um, I, I will say that the uh, synthetic embryo issue is, is a bit outside of my, uh, my scope of, uh, of daily focus. Uh, I'm, I'm much more focused on uh, the, the national security perspective of uh, uh, politics. Um, but, I, but, you know, we, maybe we could address how uh, different state legislatures are uh, acting in um, and in addressing uh, some of these issues that you know have a national effect, but are uh, affected uh, first by how a state legislature acts. Uh, something that you didn't mention, but that continues to come up, are various ways that China is probing and testing the U.S. Uh, there have been a variety of incidents over the last several months, uh, some of which are reported, some of which seem to go unreported or at least underreported and are only focused on within a, a very small national security set. But, uh, you know, China has uh, has been buying up land in Africa that has uh, uh, strategic minerals and resources uh, associated with it. Uh, those are resources that we need in our supply chains. Uh, in, in some cases, uh, rare earth materials are not available in the U.S. and have to be outsourced or sourced from uh, out of our country. Uh, China has been working on this for, for 20 years. Uh, we've had uh, probes at our military bases. Uh, dozens and dozens of uh, Chinese nationals have attempted to gain access to or just take pictures of bases. Uh, we had the uh, ship patrols up off Alaska about two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, 11 ships, Russia and China combined. Uh, the U.S. put four ships against that, uh, you know, from our Pacific fleet. You know, was that all we could muster at the time? Was that an adequate response? Uh, I think there is a, a readiness issue uh, burbling under the surface, a U.S. readiness issue to uh, put our money where our mouth is with respect to some of our uh, China policy. Um, we're being tested regularly. Uh, it doesn't seem to get reported on uh, by national media in a, in a detailed way such that people could understand it. Well, I, I guess the w ways to start um, this conversation, because there's a lot of prongs to it, of course, is when you're speaking about national security, what exactly does that mean to a person, to a citizen of the United States? Um, because obviously they probably heard this term a lot and have some broad underbrushed ideas, but don't really understand the, the true significance of this term. So well, can you explain yeah, that for the people? You know, it's only natural, Riddell. Uh, we've lived in relative peace uh, in, a, in a global sense for over 75 years now. Uh, 
uh, you know, since the end of World War II. It's not to say that there have not been international conflicts, but uh, we in the United States have lived in relative peace. Uh, we have had an all-volunteer military force for decades now. And so when we were fighting overseas, it was a very, very small portion of the population that was truly feeling that. And as a result, that those wars were allowed to go on probably longer than they would have had more people been feeling the brunt of participation, had if they had family members uh, in the military, so to speak. Um, so it's only natural that we we view national security in sort of abstract terms because it doesn't seem to affect us day to day. But I've had the uh, good fortune to uh, serve in the Navy. I, I was a Navy captain, commanded ships at sea. I served for 24 years. Uh, in one of my roles, I uh, escorted members of Congress around the world on international delegations. I was able to see, observe, and in some cases participate in very high level meetings with our allies and uh, NATO partners. Uh, I've seen firsthand through interaction with foreign militaries what the relationships mean uh, in a global sense, how uh, other countries are relying on us and how we rely on other countries to do basic things like maintain sea lines of communication where all of our commerce can can move uh, without, without risk. Uh, for those who don't uh, appreciate what it took in World War II to get to this state of relative peace, um, I would encourage them to, to do a little bit of homework and ask, you know, what if we didn't have this peace? What, what if we were, we were fighting in a, in a different front? Today we hear a lot about, you know, the U.S. defense of Taiwan should China invade Taiwan. <clears throat> While that may be something that comes about, Many people can't embrace what could that mean? What would that mean to us at, in my home? Well, if, if you were to imagine uh, U.S. Navy warships being sunk in a battle like that, which every war game that's been conducted to sort of game this scenario out suggests that we would take very serious losses, potentially loss of aircraft carriers, loss of aircraft. We've not seen those kind of losses uh, on, on the global stage since World War II. And, uh, you know, when, when there isn't uh, a clear sense of balance and world order, if there's any kind of vacuum, history proves that vacuum will fill. And so what would the conditions be? What would that mean to our economy? What would it mean to our need to raise uh, a military by, by perhaps a, a draft or conscription of some sort? It could change people's lives dramatically, and we're at a we're at a, a point now, you know, seventy five years since World War II, where multiple generations are removed from that time period. So, um, you know, what does it mean? It, it means how do we protect our standing if it were ever challenged, and what does that mean to us? So when it comes to the United States, we know that the general perception, which is very, um, you know, warranted, is that the United States is the strongest country in the world, greatest military in the world. Uh, we spend a lot of money on our military, takes a good chunk of our uh, budget, our spending budget, of course. Um, so we, in terms of our resources, our weaponry, our tools, and our military, it trumps basically everybody else, including China, including Russia, of course. So with that said, what exactly would be the concern for um, other countries, even if, because we know that China and Russia, they want to form the BRICS alliance, they want to challenge the United States, and they are allies as the you know, dominant influence throughout the entire world. They even want to cha challenge the U.S. dollar. So with those are different scenarios, and obviously we can break uh, break into them piece by piece. But in terms of the 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 fear of um, being challenged militarily, some people would say that's probably the least of our wars because we're just so much more dominant than everybody else. So what, what do you think about that? Well, think back to uh, then General Colin Powell, 
who uh, very articulately uh, voiced the need to proceed with overwhelming force. If you're going to get into a, a, a conflict of some type, you want to bring overwhelming force. Uh, we cannot deliver overwhelming force the way we could two decades ago, one decade ago, five years ago. Behind the scenes, there has been a serious decline in our military readiness. Yes, we spend a lot. Yes, we have a very capable force when measured against any other nation in the world. However, it doesn't mean that they're uh, going to produce a slam dunk. So essentially uh, walking into uh, Kuwait or Somalia, as we did two decades plus ago, uh, that's different than taking on what are, what are referred to as near peers when you talk about somebody like China uh, or a country like China. Uh, now, not everybody agrees that, that near peer is the correct term, terminology, but there are, there are things that we don't know about conflict with somebody like China. They've been watching us for decades and how we fight. They know how we move. They know our logistics. They understand our supply chains. Uh, they, they have a very good read on us. Uh, I'm, I'm confident our intelligence community has a, uh, a pretty good read on China, but public information suggests that they continue to outproduce us in, in ships every year. They're spending and delivering more on ships uh, year over year, and that's been going on for a number of years. Uh, we have an industrial base challenge in the United States uh, in, in that the defense industrial base has contracted as much as 25% in the last five years, six years. Uh, going into COVID, it was challenged, and then COVID stressed supply chains. And uh, in 2021 alone, there are uh, academic and think tank reports that uh, suggest we had another four or five percent contraction in just the year 2021. So we're we're not as capable as as we were. Uh, yes, we have significant capability, but it doesn't mean it'll be a, a clean win without any uh, without loss of life and without loss of uh, uh, major capital assets. It's always tough. Um, in a time of peace, we've seen it throughout history in a time of peace that obviously the military power that that once great nation had was going to start dwindling. Now, as you said, in comparison to our peers, at the very least, it seems like we're still pretty dominant. But uh, um, the natural progression is our military will get weaker despite us spending like the most money on a military in the entire world. So with that said, what is the recommendation do you really have for us in terms of military readiness? Um, are you really focusing on the allocation of resources being utilized more efficiently? Are you focused more on the training itself and how they're uh, getting Marines, Navy, Army ready for different scenarios and situations? Which part are you focused more on and the military readiness aspect that you're concerned about. Yeah, well, the, the, the way it's usually discussed is that there's a balance between modernization, buying new things, and maintenance, sustaining what we have. Uh, you know, technology changes and, and advances. Uh, systems that were, or platforms that were built uh, 20 years ago were probably designed 30 years ago. Uh, and, you know, think about the changes in technology that occur there. We do have the capability to do some sorts of technology upgrades, but in uh, airframes and in ships and just in, in basic metallurgy, uh, some of those platforms have a, a very specific lifespan, sometimes 30 years, sometimes 35 years. Uh, I happen to be in San Diego as we're speaking. I'm at a fleet maintenance and modernization symposium where industry and the Navy are talking about present day readiness versus future readiness and uh, what what can be done. And it's it's where uh, those those groups can be uh, speaking you know, publicly and transparently about what the needs and challenges are. Uh, 
uh, I help companies who do both of those things, um, modernization and uh, sustainment. Uh, people, I have uh, companies that I work with who are bringing forward software solutions that allow us to do things that we couldn't even dream of five years ago. Um, things that, that relate to uh, aggregating data, looking at meta-analysis, being able to do predictive uh, sort of forecasting of how uh, equipment is uh, you know, pre predicted to perform, uh, when will it need to be maintained, those kinds of things. Uh, I have other clients that, that produce uh, very fundamental things like valves and switching uh, systems that allow other systems to, to perform at their maximum. Uh, major, plat major weapons platforms go through uh, periodic, very heavy maintenance. In the Navy, they refer to it as depot level maintenance, where you have to take assets off the line periodically to, to really do uh, deep maintenance. Think of an aircraft carrier rotation. Uh, typically, a third of the carriers in heavy maintenance, there's a third of them training to prepare, and there's a third of them out deployed. So it takes that uh, you know, three to one ratio to maintain global presence. Uh, a lot of people don't think about that because it's not it's not necessarily you know right in their day-to-day -day, uh, activities and they, they just don't see it um, so there's there's always this balance and blend and uh, figuring out what's the appropriate thing to spend on is always is always the challenge there's a saying uh, in in military spending that we're, we're always preparing for the last war and and we we struggle to use our imaginations to really land on what do we need to be building for a future war. Sometimes we can't imagine how that future war might unfold. Uh, I'll use an example of uh, Russia and Ukraine. Who would have thought that moving Starlink uh, at, the, at the direction of Elon Musk would, would allow for a type of communications that Ukraine didn't have access to uh, prior to the start of that war, but it changed how they could execute command and control and allowed them to establish a, uh, a footing and a way to, a way to uh, you know, communicate among themselves. Uh, things like that were not necessarily imagined two years ago. So it seems like, so are you saying that the, the biggest worry is innovation right now for our military readiness, uh, readiness um, which do you think that a country like China is probably more innovative, innovative, and have more foresight to potential conflicts in the future. Do you think that is the the prime issue? We're right we're now? the most. I I would say we're the most innovative country in the world. Our processes uh, prevent that innovation from coming forward swiftly and and easily. And by processes, I mean the way that we develop a budget for example, at the federal level. It takes three years for that budget to be developed and approved by Congress, and then for uh, items to be put on contract. So we just talked about Starlink as an, as an example. I said two years ago, it wasn't possible to do what, what was done. Well, imagine if we had to make decisions about a budget three years ago about what we want to spend money on, and it takes that long for the executive branch to, to formulate its plan, to bring it forward, get it approved by the president. The president sends it to Congress. They get to put their imprint on it. And then the contracting world takes some time, the acquisition phase. So there are four phases of budgeting. And, and I know this can sound very uh, arcane, but in, in very simple terms, we uh, formulate a budget. The budget gets legislated in the form of spending bills and authorization bills. Then it goes to an acquisition phase where a, a government buying community surveys the industry for who can produce this, and then it gets put on contract. And that all takes time. And so the, the, uh, the Apple and the Google uh, sort of mindset of you know, Silicon Valley where everybody can move so fast, that does not exist in the, in the government uh, buying world. Uh, there are efforts to try to speed it up, but that kind of change will take time. We're using a budgeting process that was developed in the 1960s. It's 
called PPBE, Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution. And it was brought to DOD and then, and then to government by then Secretary McNamara. And uh, we have made marginal adjustments to that. And it was, it was brought forward as a way to manage these large sums of money using a programmatic methodology that in, was intended to ultimately save taxpayer money because there would be some responsibility and accountability, but it's, it's so slow and cumbersome that it just crushes uh, uh, innovation from coming forward. So when it, when it comes to this and the, the federal government, because we know that uh, some issues that some people may have is the federal government's not, you know, quick enough to act on certain circumstances. But we also know the reason why that is, is because of the check and balances we put in place to ensure that things are not able to be done in a uh, very corrupt manner, as best as it is. Some people still think it's corrupt, but, you know, uh, to each your own. But the reason why I bring that up is that when it comes to spending... And if we, if some people make the claim that um, our allocation of budget resources is already pretty inefficient, I guess the worry for some individuals is if you speed up the process, there's going to be more margin of error to utilize these resources inappropriately, especially when the budget is so large, as you said, because you're handling trillions, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, and the 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 great thing about innovation as we know is that something new can come out something fresh can come out and it could change the course of what is the the danger of innovation is it's a risk it's a huge risk and the risk may not pan out and everything could be for naught so with that said how are you um how would you be able to ensure that we don't quicken the budget uh allocation process enough to to where we can uh, manage that margin of error by, but also keeping it slow enough for people to uh, make sure that they're doing their due diligence in uh, figuring out the how to allocate everything how would you able how would you be able to uh, mitigate both of those circumstances well you use the word risk and it is always about balancing risk in different ways so let's step back a few years. During the uh, President Obama administration, there was a strategic decision made that we would no longer prepare our military to fight on two, uh, a two-theater front. That was our longstanding policy, to be able to fight two very large-scale wars at two different places in the world at one time. We backed off of that. And we now, all right, one war should we have to at one place in time. Um, that, that means that we took on risk that multiple countries wouldn't be capable of generating enough of a, of a problem for us at two different places in the world. So we've, we national security decision makers have decided we're going we're gonna to prepare for one. So now think about what's happening today where you have Russia, China, potentially Saudi Arabia, North Korea. You know, could you imagine that potentially multiple things could flare up at once and, and we might be pulled in two directions? So that would be an example where we took some risk. We, it was thoughtful, thoughtful risk and it was balanced against what we could afford and uh, you know the risk is either working or, or 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 it's not in our favor. So far, it's it's worked in our favor. You have to um, take some risk in how how you um, allow for accountability in any organization. Um, I don't believe there's a a hard binary answer of we're going to get it 100% right or we're going to get it zero uh, right. Uh, there's there's going to be some middle ground. So our defense budget is uh, roughly $850 billion. Pretty soon it will be $1 trillion. Uh, we're, we're not far from that. Uh, how much of that is acceptable uh, waste that is the, the friction of a bureaucracy this big? Is it 
a few billion dollars against 850 billion? I, I don't know the answer to that. It's a rhetorical question, but uh, we have to we have to get more comfortable with some ambiguity and with uh, allowing for accountability. Uh, you know, it's it's very rare that we see very high profile people fired for uh, uh, for some failure. Uh, and I'm not saying that there's there's anybody that should be on the on the chopping block, but um, you know, holding people accountable is one way to manage risk. Uh, that's a complicated problem, you know, for uniform people, for senior uh, government people who spend their career in in, in government, you know, running the bureaucracy. Uh, you know, just in the Pentagon alone, there are nearly thirty thousand people at work every day. That's a that's a huge workforce, and that, that's just the Pentagon. So uh, the scale of this problem, or, or of this challenge, I should say, is is far greater than any other uh, situation that exists anywhere on the globe. And, and uh, you know, to expect that we can get it 100% right, um, I think, is is misguided. Which is very understandable. I definitely agree to that. Um, so with that said. I guess to cover um, all our bases to kind of ask a, a different question in the same vein is that if we were to lower the terms that you're referring to in terms of creating a budget, but also lower the amount of money that we're using to, in terms of uh, spending for the defense budget, would you be an advocate for that? Um, or do you believe that we should keep the same amount or increase the amount while also lowering it? So I'm just curious on uh, your opinions about that. Well, let, let me, I'll share just a couple of uh, practicalities of how fund, federal funding works uh, when it's when it's being uh, spent, you know, at, through a government checkbook. The money is, is, it comes to the executive branch via a congressional appropriations bill. So for defense, there is a defense appropriations bill. And in that bill, it breaks down by service and then by funding account, how much money will be spent by each department on which types of programs. So classes of ships, types of aircraft, uh, submarines, tanks, wheeled vehicles, uh, personnel spending, all, all of those things are, are various accounts of money. You're not allowed to, you, the, the executive branch is not allowed to move money around across those accounts without going back and asking permission of Congress. If they want to move money in amounts greater than $10 million, they have to go back and ask Congress. Now think about that. If our shipbuilding budget is $20 billion and we need to move money from one program to another, it's probably going to be more than $10 million in, in many cases. And that takes time for that review process to, to take hold. And so when it, when it goes back to Congress, there are four defense committees, two in the Senate, two in the House. One does authorizations, one does appropriations. All four of those committees have to approve that $10 million movement. So is that a way to run something that's this big? There might've been a time when 10 million made sense, but that, that number needs to change. That th these are just a couple of examples of the sorts of procedural uh, uh, speed bumps that exist throughout the government process, and and so uh, is, is is it just a matter of changing how how much our top line spending is? Uh, no, that's part of it. Uh, how money moves within the system? That's part of it. And then what kinds of things are we are we buying? You know, are we investing in the right kind of programs? Those decisions are, are always relevant. Stop right there. Yes, this is a little mini ad. Don't skip. Don't skip. All I want to tell you right now is that at the end of the day, when it comes down to all the discussions I want to have, I want to be able to communicate with you, the audience. I want to be able to relay a message and receive a message from everyone and try to come up with these great solutions that I keep on talking about. So if you want to be part of the community, make sure you go to the website and sign up for not only the email list, so you can get weekly emails from me for the podcast episode, informational sessions, 
all that great stuff, but also sign up to go on my Discord so you can be part of the discussions, debates on my live streams. So be sure to go to the website, www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com and go to the email list, sign up and go to the Discord and join the server. Now back to the episode. So I'm glad you brought that up. Because one aspect that I was thinking of, obviously it's a very nuanced situation, is that obviously the top line amount would be maybe pretty off-putting for potentially Democrats, for example, who may want to lower the defense budget. So they probably would agree more if it's lowered. So that's why I brought that up. Because at the end of the day, and I'm not even advocating for it, I'm just bringing it up to to see where we can figure out some uh, gray area to kind of push things a little bit further. So with that said, Obviously, it comes into making sure everybody's on the same page with the top line uh, amount they're referring to. And then next, which is very interesting in terms of the four committees and, you know, whether or not there needs to be four committees that uh, need to look at it. The other aspect, like you said, is the the amount of change or the the amount uh, or threshold amount that needs to be uh you know, brought back to Congress for, which is another interesting part of it. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of back and forth when it comes down to it. And your suggestion is that there are some aspects throughout that entire process that either need to be shortened, uh, cut out, or like you said, the threshold may, uh, needs to increase. Is there uh, any other things that you're referring to that needs to be, uh, be uh, make things a little bit more efficient? Well, uh, I, I'm not so brilliant that I'm the one uh, coming forward identifying uh, uh, all that's wrong with uh, federal budgeting. Uh, this is a well-recognized problem by, by those that work it on the inside, uh, such that there is a commission that's been established by Congress that is uh, made up of uh, professionals who have experience as government comptrollers uh, or uh, even uh, as, as prior uh, elected officials or confirmed uh, appointees who are uh, uh, coming forward after a period of analysis with some recommendations that, that will include things like this. They have recently released an interim report uh, to Congress. Uh, the gist of it uh, seems to be that uh, the Department of Defense needs more flexibility than is presently allowed by Congress. Uh, that's not the only answer to this because it's such a multifaceted uh, problem, but the com this commission will release uh, its full report in, uh, I believe it's the spring of 2024. And once that happens, we'll then be faced with the challenge of, of Congress approving uh, because they have oversight of, the, of these executive branch uh, uh, spending patterns. Uh, it will take time to implement these changes. And, and when I say take time, this this could be decades to to, to turn the ship uh, the way it needs to be turned. Yeah, it definitely seems like a very nuanced uh, situation to kind of uh, navigate the, the, the budgeting, um, especially just in general in terms of federal budgeting um, and the allocation of the resources itself. So with, with that said, because um, the, the, the biggest thing you're referring to in terms of the efficiency of uh, making sure the budget is utilized a little bit more appropriately to allow for innovation, which is very important things at the end of the day. And the concern is if we're not doing that effectively, that potential rivals can catch up to an extent to make things at least more dangerous than it has to be. So I definitely understand that with um, understand that sentiment. So kind of to speak on these, uh, you know, other countries that can potentially be threats to us. Why do you believe they can be potential problems moving forward, um, considering everything we talked about? Well, I, I don't think it's a secret that China has been playing a long game uh, for longer than you and I have been alive. And uh, that, that is a, a cultural difference uh, between them and the United States uh, at, this, at the state government level. Uh, they uh, see themselves as a, uh, uh, the, a dominant uh, superpower uh, of world events. Um, not unlike the United States uh, feels that it has uh, you know, an exceptional uh, place in the world. Uh, North Korea, uh, 
certainly has uh, capability and, and expressed uh, a desire for more. Uh, Iran certainly has expressed uh, displeasure with how it's been treated in the world and wants to be uh, out on the, on the public stage. Uh, Russia has, has made no secret of its uh, desire to have a, uh, a stronger role. These are just a few uh, countries that, that don't make a secret about what their uh, greater intent is. Um, we, as a, as a United States, uh, have to pay attention to that. And, and we, we do, I, I think at the state level, we do. Uh, but think of how the average citizen consumes news. You know, we, we don't consume news well. Uh, the average American does not complete a single book in a given year. Uh, so we're not particularly well-informed. We, we live and speak in sound bites, and we are not particularly clear with our language when we talk about why we believe something or support something or think something is good or bad. And um, so the, the nuance gets lost and the detail gets lost in just communicating effectively with one another. Uh, you, you made some broad uh, comments about Democrats versus Republicans. Um, there's some excellent uh, academic work. Um, uh, a uh, academic named Lee Drutman has, has uh, documented that there are really six different flavors of Republican that are uh, in, the, in the votership right now. Uh, ranging in you know degrees of uh, conservative to to much less conservative. Uh, similarly, the Democrat uh, Party, Democratic Party, uh, has uh, you know some extreme uh, progressives, and they have very uh, centrist uh, people as well. There are many Democrats that support a strong national security. Before 2016, there there was a a, a a classification, so to speak, called the Blue Dog Democrat, which was a sort of a centrist uh, uh, Democrat that you know fell in line with a uh, uh, strong national security position, but also was uh, you know socially a little more liberal. Um, so I, I'm very hesitant to to uh, paint with the with the broad brush uh, on, on political ideology and, and its its place in in how some of these things get resolved. Um, there, there is no one right answer. There are multiple variations on answers that will work. Yeah, I definitely agree to that. Um, you know, the kind of the reason why I started this podcast is I believe in that nuance that that's um, that these things, these conversations, are more important to adhering to an ideology on the left or the right. Uh, what we see based off the broad brushes that you're referring to are probably one instances of potentially crazy progressives or uh, radical uh, conservative Trump supporters that people are just not fans of and they got a negative light overall in the media and the social media, of course. Um, with that said, when it when it comes down to our national security, the the military part is very important because we want to stay as the military power, we want to stay powerful to handle these situations, of course. And th at the end of the day, that should probably be kind of end all be all. We got to take action when we take action, of course. Um, there are other aspects that people are probably concerned about, which I'm curious to hear your thoughts about, is that our national security that people are concerned about is obviously related to the Internet. Um, one thing that people are potentially concerned about is other countries' influence onto our people. You know, TikTok is a prime example where people were bringing up that China's influence on TikTok could potentially be damaging to the American citizens because of X, Y, and Z. The internet obviously closed the gap between information and interaction between people across the world. In terms of the the role of the internet and the American people, and like you said, they may not be reading books or consuming the news well, but they're definitely on the internet all day. So with that said, what is your opinion about our, our national security versus how we treat the internet for the American people as of right now? 
There are a couple of things there, Riddell. Um, you know, I think a, a casualty of this uh, speed in communication that comes with the internet and all the uh, applications that are available, the casualty has been the truth in that um, we, we don't have uh, immutable sourcing of facts uh, the way we liked to think we did when it was you know, just limited to print journalism. Now, you, we could argue that, but uh, I, I think there was a time when there was some standard of what, what uh, constituted libel and uh, uh, you know, it, it could be prosecuted. I, I think those days are gone uh, in terms of the, what, what it, who is the arbiter of, of truth. Um, in terms of uh, security, there are a couple of different ways to look at this. Uh, there are reasons that uh, Russia and China and many others uh, probe our systems. Uh, they, they want to learn things. Uh, it's no secret that China has uh, taken our intellectual property, uh, in many cases uh, related to national security. You know, if you look at the uh, history of the d development of the F-35 in our country, for example, and if you see how quickly China has been able to build something that's pretty close, uh, they've done that because they stole our intellectual property from many places. Uh, recently, Microsoft experienced a hack. If if one of the largest uh, software companies in the world can be hacked by another nation or another uh, rogue entity, then anybody is vulnerable. Uh, a few years ago, the, the entire uh, uh, Office of Personnel Management for the government was hacked such that any person who holds a security clearance, I, I count myself among them, but it's millions of people who have security clearance records, they were all compromised. This is happening uh, not dozens, not hundreds, not thousands of times a day. It's happening millions of times a day on, in all aspects of our lives. Uh, some of us, um, I think, foolishly believe we haven't been hacked. Um, you probably have. Uh, you may not have had anything of value that that uh, hacker wanted, but your system has probably been penetrated. Um, I have had clients who've experienced uh, ransomware attacks uh, uh, or a cyber attack. Uh, these things are not widely publicized when they happen, but believe me, the, the FBI understands uh, what's required to, to uh, fall in on a situation when it happens and, and try to use uh, some sort of forensic analysis to to figure it out. In terms of uh, companies that I work with who sell to the federal government, the, the government is trying to enforce cyber standards in um, uh, materials that are brought forward to the government and how companies' uh, internal systems comply with uh, cyber protection features. Uh, those are very expensive things to install. Uh, you know, for a very small company to even get to the most basic level of compliance with government cyber standards, they might have to spend $100,000. Depending on where you sit, that's either a whole lot of money or that's not much money at all. But for a startup, that's, that's lifeblood. Um, I am a proponent of the government funding those sort of security, uh, uh, required security protocols. So if, if the government is going to require a small business to have a certain standard of cybersecurity, the government should help that small company pay for that. That's, that's this is my belief. That might cost us a few billion dollars to do that. There are anywhere between 500,000 and 1 million companies in the defense industrial base. Say that costs us a few billion to do that. It would save us billions more and it would allow a speed of entry that we're not seeing of new innovative companies coming forward. So cyber is huge. It's likely to be uh, a, an essential part of uh, the next major conflict. Uh, it's, it is certainly a part of how we would respond to a conflict. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's extremely complicated. I'll tell you a quick story. It was not that long ago when I, I was a, a corporate lobbyist for a defense company 
and I had a boss who was a, a little bit older than, than me, but, uh, you know, a pretty smart guy. And at the time, cyber was, was being mentioned everywhere. Cyber this, cyber that. We got to get into cyber. And he said, bring me a bucket of cyber because I don't even know what it is. You got you to show me what it is. And now we, we kind of understand what, what cyber means. But, but uh, that transition is, has taken us too long to get to. I'm glad you brought that up because as of right now, in my personal opinion, obviously, you know, we talked extensively about our, our military and, you know, that's very important. But moving forward, I think it's very obvious to me at the very least that cyber warfare is going to be the future. Like you said, having the ability to um have the proper protections against potential hackers and also honestly probably having hackers of our own infiltrating other countries um cyber warfare especially considering more and more information is being inputted on the internet knowledge matter of fact they are transitioning more and more trying to at the very least into virtual currency as well so basically anything and everything that makes up a society will be put on the internet. And another part of it, obviously, as well, is AI technology, because that also is increasing in popularity and usefulness. And the the translatable skills that AI has been doing more and more since its like initial implementation, which honestly, once it started getting popular, probably around last year, it just been accelerating at a crazy rate which more and more technology is being created from it. So in terms of, you know, cyber warfare and AI technology, honestly, in my opinion, being the future of, it should be national security. How much focused as a country, as a whole, do you think we should be putting into our efforts into mastering AI technology and cyber warfare? I, th I think they are uh, two separate but uh, related uh, disciplines that, that are evolving. Uh, the, the U.S. federal government has been making uh, very serious strides in establishing a, uh, a structure to uh, oversee cybersecurity. Uh, there is a uh, uh, you know, combatant command uh, devote, devoted to this sort of activity. Uh, there, there is a... Uh, in each service, there is a command devoted to um, uh, cyber activity. Uh, there are cyber warriors uh, across our Department of Defense who are, uh, you know, specialists in in this sort of stuff. And they and they were, you know, digital natives, so to speak. They, they grew up with uh, with uh, with some of these technologies. Um, in terms of AI, uh, I, I think uh, we have to accept what it is. Um, Gary Vaynerchuk, a very hugely successful entrepreneur, says, hey, AI is what the tractor was to the farmer. You know, there was a time when we didn't have mechanical implements to, to do farming and to speed farming up. Um, for the most part, any technology that has come along has improved the condition of man. Um, some could argue that. I would say um, nuclear weapons are probably an area where we have not quite mastered that. Uh, we 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 uh, we've kept that genie in the bottle, but uh, not not without having uh, experienced some some pain in the in the early days. But most other technologies uh, seem to improve the human condition in some way, and it's a matter of us uh, mastering them. So there's you know generative AI uh, could be something that that speeds, uh, speeds progress along and makes people and uh, companies and enterprises much, much more efficient because there's there many tasks that we do that are, that are fairly repetitive and um, they may not be routine, but they, they don't require us to, you know, start from ground zero every time. Uh, there uh, in the, in the world of predictive AI, uh, you know, that, that can be of tremendous benefit to us to, to, be able to, you know, see around corners, so to speak, of what what might be up ahead, and to help our thinking move more quickly to uh, ultimately allow us to to use our imaginations to to a, a, a more maximized uh, in a more maximized way. 
to to imagine what the what the future is that we're trying to prepare for. Um, I think th these are these are you know critical ingredients of uh, of uh, life today and of uh, you know international uh, relations and how we interact with other countries. Uh, but they're they're here to stay. They're not, they 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 will not go away. So it's for us to master them. So to kind of touch upon that, I, I'm just genuinely curious because I can actually see this being something that's implemented in the future. Because, like I said, I think cyber warfare is going to be the future in terms of, you know, conflict, um, getting information ruining systems on other countries, et cetera, et cetera, whatever you want to bring up. Can you see a future where the another military branch is created purely for cyber warfare? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and and uh, I don't I don't know the uh, exact inside uh, architecture of uh, space command or space force. But I, uh, I imagine there's a there's a uh, sizable cyber component there. I know there's a cyber component in every other service, so uh, right. it, it only it only makes sense. Um, you know, Riddell, when I went to a uh, a uh, joint school, <clears throat> this was back in the in the '90s, so uh, or yeah, late '90s, uh, we were for, we were forcing Army, Navy, Air Force to go to school together to to learn how to work with each other as as a service. In those days, we were talking about the possibility of some internet virus taking down our financial system. You know, what would happen if uh, the stock exchange were taken down or if Bank of America were taken down? That, that was the sort of the thinking of what cyber could be. Uh, you know, those, those sorts of things um, do happen. And, you know, we see where trading gets stopped for some sort of activity or uh, you know, a, a part of a bank might have an issue, and they they're able to isolate it and, and move on. So we don't we don't necessarily know that it's happened, but you know these these things are happening, and it's not that we we couldn't imagine them. But it, in in those cases where it's civilian activities, it takes a whole of government approach that is working in concert with uh, industry and some. Play better than others in the, in those situations. You know, some some uh, are, are fully engaged, some some are not. Uh, that's a leadership challenge. I would say, coupled with cyber, at least with respect to uh, warfare, is the use of uh, uncrewed systems. So we used to say unmanned. The term of art today is uncrewed. So we have uncrewed submersibles, uh, underwater vehicles. Uh, that, that can do a lot of things, some of which you know we can't talk about here. We have uh, uncrewed surface vessels of varying sizes, some quite large, that uh, uh, we have proven can work. Those can give us great flexibility to have presence and response and surveillance in places around the world where we don't have to put people at risk, but it requires a degree of uh, command and control and cybersecurity and uh, the understanding of data and artificial intelligence uh, to help us, you know, monitor and process things on that scale. So they 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 fit together. So I, I definitely agree, and we talked about quite a bit. And I guess to kind of touch upon a, a final important point in reference to national security is that when it comes down to our own borders. A lot of people have complained, especially from our southern border, of course, that, you know, illegal immigration has been a continuous problem. And in comparison to the conversation of cybersecurity or, you know, our military, there are relatively positive notions about both. Whereas the people, by my kind of um, opinion or at the very least insight on what I've seen, is people have a pretty negative interpretation or negative outlook in terms of us handling the illegal immigration problem in terms of our, you know, national security. So with that said, do you, how, what do you think about us handling um, our borders? How do you think we can improve in that aspect? I don't know of another country in the world that does what we do uh, with respect to management of people at the border. 
uh, and I've been to over 60 countries, um, we, we allow people to come in and then we subject them to some form of monitoring and uh, we set a, a date for them to appear before you know, someone in our immigration or judicial system. Uh, but it's, it's so backed up and there's, there's poor enforcement uh, that we have generations now that, are, that have lived in this country uh, without conforming to our uh, you know, immigration policy. Our immigration policy has been conflicted for decades across multiple administrations. Uh, you can apply force at the border. I mean, that, that, that could be a solution. I, I don't necessarily uh, propose that. But when you look at how other countries deal with it, there, there, are, there are fences and locks that keep people out unless they've been granted permission to come in. It doesn't seem that we have that system quite figured out, at least on the southern border. And so I, I think there's, there's legitimacy to the position that we've got to figure out how to secure the border. Uh, there can be ways to uh, uh, layer uh, who should be allowed in and who shouldn't be allowed in, but it it can't be a free for all. And I and I think there's a there's a uh, a, a well earned perception that uh, we don't have clear control down there, um, and, and that's that's been a problem now for for just far too long. Uh, you know how how do we solve that? We need we need a national will to uh, inform the government that we elect, you know, these are, we do elect these officials uh, to, that, that make, make the law and that uh, determine the policy, uh, but it takes time. And the problem, a problem is that during that time that it takes to, to address the, the, uh, the policy issue, you know, more bad things happen, uh, more, you know, more people come in. And, and so something does need to be done. I. I, I'm ideologically independent, but I I can see that uh, uh, not having uh, control of that border is is problematic. Uh, I definitely agree. I, I would. I'm. Um, I always think when it comes down to the border that there's really no good reason to allow uh, for such ease of access to an extent in terms of illegal immigration and um the efficiency of us you know paying making sure that the right people are coming in making sure we're keeping tabs on the people that are in and you know the overall security of the southern border as we're talking about so uh, I'm, I'm in a very similar vein and a, a big thing that you know we advocate for on this podcast is that even if you're one of those individuals who are probably pro-immigration, which is not, nothing wrong with being pro-immigration. I think immigration has played a lot into creating the melting pot that is the United States of America. But I do think there's a general recognition that illegal immigration is probably not the best considering, like, I, like I've said before, they're illegal for the most part. We just want to make sure everybody's vetted properly. So that's why you got to be an advocate, especially if you're super against it. Got to be an advocate. Like Gina said, you have to vote in individuals. You have to vote in um, people who are more committed to making sure that our border is secured and all the other aspects that we're talking about in terms of national security. You know, national security is a very complex situation. There are things that we can continuously do to improve it, of course, whether it's, you know, improving the efficiency process to allow better innovation and in reallocating budget resources, or it's to improve our cyber warfare, cybersecurity programs, um, continuously advancing it, making it the best in the world. Honestly, we probably should because... If I'm a country that doesn't have the military power that America has, one thing that I will do is invest a lot of money in my cybersecurity abilities. So we got to make sure we're the best and that nobody really touches us. So there are definite aspects that we continuously approve. Being stagnant, being um, ignorant of that would be um, very lazy and very foolish at the end of the day. Uh, so with that said, Talked about a lot, Gene. So before we wrap up, you have any uh, final things you want to say? I, I would uh, put, put a cherry on top there with your final comments, Riddell, in that, uh, you know, for democracy to work, let, let alone achieve its promise, uh, it requires citizens to be informed. Uh, 
you and I have just had a an hour plus discussion here that's that's not been the least bit contentious. We may or may not agree on on the on the issues. Others may or may not agree on the issues, but but the uh, yelling one's position louder or uh, you know speaking through a singular channel uh, to to try to convey your position uh, isn't the way that this will ever be solved. And and so you know. Uh, I, I mentioned that truth was a uh, uh, something that's that's been compromised as a result of speed of information. I, I think uh, we we need to find truth and find common ground and and uh, you know have uh, le- legitimate discourse. We don't we don't have to agree on everything. I, I commend you for this podcast that uh, uh, focuses on uh, voicing. Uh, reasonable perspectives uh, and, and understanding everyone has a right to their position and opinion. Um, but that means everyone has a right. And, and so, you know, let's, let's talk about it. A hundred percent. That's what we're here to do, of course. So I really do hope you guys enjoy, uh, enjoyed this podcast episode. You can find Gene's information on the website, on his guest profile, of course. Um, rate it five stars if you enjoyed, like it, all that stuff. Follow all the socials, of course. Y'all have a good... Well, check it out, y'all. We got what you need. We're all living in apartments, condos, vans. Well, dude... Even you can have a studio. A studio in a box. Yes, we can help you with that right here at Blind Knowledge. We work on your budget, and we figure out your measurements. We'll get you the best sound for the best price. Let me know, 877-237-1143, or at blindknowledge.com. Yep.